0: I want to ask you to be in prayer this morning because um, you might not know where my sermons come from. They come from my time in God's Word, my devotional life. Sometimes God sparks a thought in my mind through a conversation with someone, and I had some wonderful conversations with my brother, Jimmy. Jimmy. Uh, He's James, I'm John. He's a fisherman, I'm a fisher of men. My mother, I think, had some epiphany. God was putting something together in her mind, and I'm still working on it because my brother is a passionate fisherman. I'm a passionate fisher of men. And um, I I came to find out quite a bit about him and my family when I was in the Virgin Islands. uh, You heard me talk about my roots, mom being Filipino and, and white, and my dad black and Native American, and I always asked the question, where did I get my height from? Well, I came to find out my grandmother was six, two and a half, six, three. I never knew that all these years. But my brother, being six years older than me, was able to take me through some family history as well as He was the one that opened the door to why this sermon was born. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we dive into the message. But let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord to guide and for the Lord to bless. Gracious Father in heaven, it is indeed a privilege, but surely a tremendous responsibility to open your word. And I pray now that As we open the Word, we could find in it a rich mining of truths, nuggets that when implemented in our minds and in our lives, it leads to great transformation. Speak to your people, speak to your servant, but may your name and your Word be exalted this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not going to lead out with the scripture reading this morning. I'm going to bring that in later on in the sermon. But um, I want to begin with a question. Have you ever heard the phrase or have you ever said before, where did that come from? Where did that come from? I'm discovering that that is not only a term that we use in our Conversations and in our relationships with people. But the Bible is filled with those, where did that come from moments? And I'm discovering that the Apostle Paul, looking down the generations that are unfolding before us, he was able to diagnose a condition that would arrest and affect the Christian world. And it would be as they look back. They would say, Where did that come from? Where did that come from? And I'm sure that many of you could now begin to open your file cabinet of experiences and say, Yeah, Maria, that, that was one of those moments. Where did that where? Yeah, I got it. Where, we have a lot of where did that come from moments in our lives. But Paul diagnosed a condition that would arrest and affect the Christian world. And as I read the scripture in just a moment, too often, though, We apply the rejection of truth to people that are of various denominations, other people, other walks of life. But as I study, I am finding that what Paul is going to describe is also becoming prevalent among those that profess to know the truth. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. We find these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And here's what he said, and this is becoming prevalent among those who profess to know the truth. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure, what are the next two words? Sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. As I study God's Word and I'm uh, becoming aware of the landscape around us, I am becoming acutely aware that those affected by this syndrome don't consider themselves as openly abandoning the truth. I'm going to say that again. Those that profess to know about the Sabbath, the truth about what happens when you die, the 2,300 days as they become aware of what that really means, and many of the key foundational truths of the Bible, many of those that have already embraced those beliefs, solid scriptural beliefs, when they are going down a road of tangent, they wouldn't say that they are openly abandoning the truth. Follow me carefully. But when you begin to see and hear what those who should know the future, when you begin to hear and see the changes in their lives and the things that they are now passionate about, you ask yourself the question, Where did that come from? How could a person who believes the truth of God's Word, of Bible prophecy, of the Advent message, why am I seeing that kind of passion towards something that has no value in direction of salvation or eternity? And I'm becoming acutely aware of the fact that those that are now going down these what I call rabbit holes are being pulled in by the unpredictable elements of a society gone mad. And Paul, in describing this as one of Satan's most effective tools, the apostle Paul wrote how this is happening. He says in Romans chapter 16, verse 18, By smooth words. What kind of words? Smooth words and flattering speech, speaking about those behind this manipulation. They deceive the hearts of the simple. Can I make a point? It is too late for the people of God to be simple. And the word there is not meaning the opposite of complex, but the people of God ought to be clear about where the world is headed, about what has already been revealed in God's word. Can you say amen? But, but Paul is saying that something is going to happen, that there are going to be prominent figures, people of great notoriety and great skills of conviction and, 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 um, and manipulation that are going to come along with smooth words and flattering speech and something is going to happen to those that claim to know the truth. Their ears are going to begin to itch, and they're going to begin abandoning what they know to be right and start going down these rabbit holes almost completely oblivious of what's going to happen if they continue that journey. And I suggest to you that Christians are being drawn in because they don't see. The direction of the storm. Hurricane Hugo, as my brother and I sat on the day before we left to come back home, my brother, my sister, my wife, his girlfriend, and I, we sat at a table right there in Frenchtown in the Virgin Islands having what he called, he said, I felt so comfortable tonight, I decided to really open up, and he opened up and began to unveil, as my older brother, things about family history that I had never known. But because he's a fisherman, as we were out in the um, Caribbean Ocean, sailing on a 40-foot catamaran, he began to talk about storms. And he said to me, he didn't talk about Hurricane Maria or Hurricane Irma, but he said, Hurricane Hugo was one of the strongest storms that had ever hit the Virgin Islands. When you study history, you find that Hurricane Hugo was the strongest hurricane that ever hit South Carolina. And at the time, meteorologists said it was the costliest hurricane. For 15 days, Hurricane Hugo, back in the 1980s, battered everything in its path, devastating everything that it came in contact with. And at its height, Hurricane Hugo was a Category 5. According to weather.gov, I read this quotation about Hurricane Hugo. Hugo's eye crossed St. Croix in the US Virgin Islands. You'll find out why that's very significant. Early in the morning of September 18th, then just six hours later struck the island of Vieques along the east coast of Puerto Rico with winds estimated near 125 miles an hour. An anemometer on the ship Nightcap in the harbor clocked the winds at Culebra measuring 170 miles an hour. But my interest in the impact of Hurricane Hugo came when I talked about my brother who lives in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. He said that Hurricane Hugo was 130 miles south of St. Thomas. St. Croix is 40 miles south of St. Thomas. Hurricane Hugo, follow the numbers, was 90 miles south of St. Croix. And the question was, how can a hurricane 130 miles away devastate in the impact that Hurricane Hugo devastated St. Croix and St. Thomas? So when I asked the question, how could that happen? He said, well, one of the greatest impacts of a hurricane is not their south winds, but it's the north side of the hurricane." and he began to explain he said hurricanes began hurricanes rotate around the eye of the storm which is the lowest pressure of the storm that's why i asked him how come that your how is it that your wooden house survived every hurricane that hit the virgin islands he said well i've learned about hurricanes when the pressure is decreasing and i find out the direction of the storm i open the window on the opposite side of the house to equalize the pressure inside to the pressure outside. And he said to me, winds don't often blow roofs off, but it's the pressure that builds up in the house that blows the roof off. It explodes, it implodes out. And he says, the reason my house is still here, he said, first of all, I know God is keeping us together, but I make sure that if the storms are coming from that direction, I open that window so the pressure can go from that window through the house, out that window. And inside my house and outside my house, the pressure is still the same. Man, I tell you, my spiritual mind, Ricky, was going crazy. I heard all kinds of spiritual parallels. And I was saying, if the people of God can only equalize inside their lives the pressures to the world's pressures around us, we won't blow our tops so often. But he began to go on. He said, He said, the northeast quadrant is always rotating in the area of the storm. It's the part that's leading. And he says, All the major rain bands are coming in from that side, especially when they hit landfall, making it the most powerful part of the storm. But he said, The other side of the hurricane, the northwest, the west, and the southwest sides are considered the drier parts of the storm. But the north winds are the most dangerous parts. Of the storm. And then he said, as his girlfriend butted in, she said, Right now we are buying supplies because meteorologists said that this year could be one of the most active hurricane seasons in decades. And when you live in the Virgin Islands and you just went through Hurricane Irma, category five, followed by Hurricane Maria, category five, those words you don't take lightly. So when the winds begin to pick up in the Virgin Islands, Virgin Islanders do not take soft winds lightly. Thus, our scripture reading for the morning. Here it is. The Apostle Paul does an amazing job contributing to the message. And he talks about the journey of Paul when he appealed to Caesar. He wanted to go to Rome because he had been wrongly accused. And the Bible says in this journey, when the south winds, Acts 27, verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Now, with all that information I just gave you, you know the south wind is not the threat. But the south wind is the leading edge of the storm, When the south wind begins to blow and you are in the Asiatic Sea, where Paul was surrounded by many land masks, you know that because of that piece of land and that piece of land and this piece of land and that piece of land, you are in what they call the wash. Because the winds are going to come from every direction and you're going to be in a washing machine agitating state. And you won't be able to control what's happening around you. Let me suggest to you today as I build the message, our world is changing rapidly. And to so many that don't know the Bible, the future is unpredictable. I've seen that people are building their hopes on shifting sands of uncertainty because they don't study God's Word. People rely on the news, what the meteorologists say, what the politicians say, what the economists say. But those of us that are building our future on the Word of God ought not face the future with fear and uncertainty. The world is shackled together by unstable promises. But here's the problem. Many that are claiming to believe the truth are beginning to embrace superficial speculation. Listening to the voices of politicians, listening to economists' voice, listening to the things that are pulling the world down the rabbit holes... And here's the problem. When speculation replaces dependability, it leads people to dial back urgency. Let me ask a question. Do you think that Christians ought to live urgent lives? Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, what? Seeking whom he may devour. More than ever before, God's people ought to live a life of urgency. That's why the Apostle Paul says what he does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3. He says, For when they say, Peace and safety, be careful, then what's going to happen? Sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. When those pains say that what is coming Is far more intense than what you anticipated. They will not escape. And I can't say from experience, but I can say there are many of you that have children understand what labor pains are all about. You ought to say amen. When they start coming, they ain't going nowhere. Till that baby comes out. Amen, ladies. (laughs) For you, it's sudden joy. The loudest scream precedes the greatest gift. The sudden destruction is the result of an unprepared society. And that's why it is critical for us to educate ourselves concerning today the direction of the storm. Now, as I continue building, I am amazed how Christians exposed to unlimited scriptural knowledge consciously unplug and disable their reasoning capacities. Let me say that another way. I'm always amazed when I have a conversation with brethren of like faith, and I know that what they believe is what I believe, and, but what they're saying to me doesn't make sense. And I asked myself the question, did they unplug and did they disable their reasoning capacity? In other words, said with me, where did that come from? And I've been having a lot of those conversations lately. Brethren of like faith, and I'm going to say this not to the exclusion of other Christians, but I expect Seventh-day Adventists to speak a certain way. When I start hearing stuff that doesn't even make sense with our theology, or more specifically, our theology backed up by scriptural support, I asked myself the question, where is that coming from? And I've discovered that people are succumbing to the polarization of nonsense. The devil is having a party over distracted Christians. There was a time, and I praise God that this is not behind us, but there was a time, and you remember, where there was a big argument over whether you are a blue or red state. The argument was, who are you voting for? Now that that's passed, the devil has some new junk that he's throwing our way. Now the controversy is, Are you ready for it? Wearing a mask or not wearing a mask? What does that have to do with salvation? And I recently had a conversation with two young folk that I'm praying hard about. We spent almost two hours. They were trying to convince me that the vaccine is the mark of the beast. And I kept saying, did you forget what the Bible says? Controversies, contentions over the vaccine has replaced the argument over patriotism. You get what I'm saying? Where did that come from? And I spent so much time saying, if you follow the scenario of revelation, you will never get caught up in the washing machine of speculation. It's getting tougher now to get Adventists to believe like an Adventist should, to say it plainly. And the Apostle Peter said the hour is too late to allow speculation to replace spiritual stability. 2 Peter 1, verse 19, here's why he says that. We have also a more sure word. Say those three words with me again. A what? More sure word of what? Of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed. Why? Why? As unto a light that shineth where? In a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arises in your hearts. Paul is saying, You have got prophecy. Brethren, do we have prophecy? I have not found, as somebody once said to Pastor Doug Batchelor, my good friend, he says, why are you an Adventist? He said, because this church teaches the clearest scriptural-based truth I've ever found. And he said to them, as we stood by the door of one of our evangelistic series years ago, he says, if you point me to a church that's more solidly based on the Bible than this, I'll join it. That's not arrogance. That's a praise God moment. Because we're not, we're not allegiant to names or denominational titles. We are allegiant to the Word of God. Here's my point. If American Airlines Flight 191 takes me home, that's the plane I'm getting on. Anybody else say amen? So it's not about what airline is. Where am I headed? Paul is saying, Peter is saying, you have got the Word of God confirmed. It is sure. You need to take heed to it because it is a light. In this dark world, the light of prophecy is shining more and more. So those who didn't think that Rome could ever gain the support of America, they don't think that way anymore. Am I right? For those that thought the Sunday law would never come, they don't think that way anymore. But then I, once in a while, run into... into I don't know, I don't believe I'm saying this. Every now and then I run into Adventists that say, oh, there's no possibility of a Sunday law. And I ask them, were you in a cryonic state? Meaning, did somebody freeze you for 30 years? And you're just still thawing out? Where have you been? And as I was studying my devotional earlier this week, my good friend, Oswald Chambers, he doesn't know that I'm his friend, but I'm his friend. My good friend, Oswald Chambers, helped contribute to this because he talked, about, he talked about an unpredictable moment in the life of Joab. He talked about a very unpredictable moment in the life of Joab, something that was unforeseen. And I'd like to invite you to go to 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 28. I will bring it up on the screen, but I'm going to go ahead and quote what Oswald Chambers wrote in his devotional entitled, Beware of the Least Likely Temptation. Beware of the Least Likely Temptation. Oswald Chambers wrote, he said, He said, Joab withstood the greatest test of his life, remaining absolutely loyal to David. I'm reading the quote. It's not on the screen. Joab withstood the greatest test of his life, remaining absolutely loyal to David by not turning to follow after the fascinations and ambitions of Absalom. Absalom tried his best to get the support of Joab, but Joab would not go down the road of Absalom's fascinations and ambitions. He remained loyal to David. But toward the end of his life, Joab turned to follow after the weak and cowardly Adonijah. And and Solomon wondered, where did that come from? Here's the scripture. 1 Kings 2, verse 28. And this is reviewing the life of Joab, because many things happened prior to this. But reviewing the life of Joab, the Bible says, then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected. What's that word? Defected, that means he departed. He defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. Let me go ahead and explain what we just read. Earlier in Joab's life, Joab was a man who teetered between allegiance and non-allegiance. He followed the wind. If he saw something he didn't like, that he preferred, he would express it in his heart, but he wouldn't actually make the decision to go in that direction. And they were able to rely pretty much on Joab being a stable individual. But then Joab took some matters into his own hand and was guilty of killing two men. After the news came that Joab had taken the life of Absalom. Joab fled to the tabernacle and grabbed onto the horns of the altar, believing that as long as I'm holding on to the horns of the altar, they won't kill me here. So the news came back as a company was sent to find Joab and to, let me just say it, take him out. He figured they're not going to kill me in the tabernacle, so I'm going to hold onto the horns of the altar. And Joab said, "I'm not leaving. I'm staying right. I'm not. I'm right here. You ain't going to kill me in church." So they came back and said, "Did you get it?" They said, "No. Joab is at church holding onto the horns of the altar. I'm kind of contemporizing it because he refuses to come out. He knows if he comes out, he's going to die." So they said, okay, if that's the way he wants to die, kill him in church. So they went ahead and they, they avenged the blood that Joab shed by taking his life right where he was. Now that may sound like a ruthless act. But when you begin to unpack the life of Joab, here it is again. Earlier in his life, Joab refused to remove the position he was convicted on. He was loyal. You can count on him. He wouldn't budge. He was a reliable soldier. That's why it says, for he did not defect to Absalom. And Absalom was a good-looking young man. He was very clever. He was ambitious. He was fascinating. And Joab said, I am not going to follow you, Absalom. But as the course of time went, something happened in Joab's life that they said, where did that come from? And Joab in the later parts of his life had defected to Adonijah, moving, removing his loyalty to the cause of God to follow after a man who led him down a rabbit hole. Let me make it even clearer. The moral of the text is Because Joab did not follow Absalom, it was unthinkable that later he would follow Adonijah. Because he didn't follow Absalom, it was unthinkable that he would later follow Adonijah. In other words, when you look over the patterns of individuals' lives, you might say, that was never the way he was. So what contributed to this sudden change in his life? In other words, say it with me, where did that come from? The direction of the storm. And when you summarize Joab's life, the victory of his past failed to be a barrier to the failure of his future. The victories of his past failed to be a barrier to the failure of his future. Joab failed because he did not see, here it is again, the direction of the storm he wasn't ready for that he didn't see it coming have you ever had those moments come on somebody didn't see it coming how did joab fail he did not spiritually prepare himself so when the storm came from an unexpected direction joab failed Ready for the application? Do you think that the devil is predictable? If you say yes, can I be very candid with you? You are not awake. You think you are at the place where you are able and equipped to contend with somebody that's been around for more than 6,000 years? Paul said it clearly. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You can't fight somebody you can't see, right? You don't know where he is. I read a statement in all White's writings that really kind of shuddered me. She said, Satan's steps are noiseless. Then she also says, by the time you realize he's using you, he's done. And then she described something that really caught my attention. Really, I had to read it twice. The way she described it, She did it this way. She says, demons stand so close to you that they are within inches studying your expressions, studying your body language, taking note of the things that bother you, the things you don't like, the things you utter under your voice. Ah, I heard that. And planning, and they're building their arsenal so that they can penetrate your bulletproof vest A few weeks from now. And just when you think it's safe to go in the water, the lifeguard yells, shark. What am I saying? Brethren, it is time for the people of God to wake up, because we are not able in our own flesh to contend with an enemy who has us beat in experience by thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Can you imagine what Satan's case study library looks like? He had a conversation with the most ignominious tyrants in history. The name of the ignominious tyrannical men of history It's too long for me to even mention one of them. But can you imagine the conversation he had with Hitler? Here's what you need to do, Hitler. And I think I need to stop right there. He has been able to pull off some of the most diabolical methods of persecution and torture You only need to peek into the book of Fox's Book of Martyrs just to get an idea of the depth of the carnality and the hatred in the mind of this satanic demon. So Joab, not preparing himself spiritually, had no clue where the storm was coming from. And he failed, and it cost him his life. Oswald Chambers said, always remain alert to the fact that where one person has turned back is exactly where anyone may be attempted to also turn back. Remember that in John 6, 66? The Bible says many of the disciples, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and walk with him no more. How amazing. It's it's in John 6, 66. And then Jesus Jesus looked at Peter and said, are you also going to leave me? And I love Peter. He wasn't yet converted, but he said, where am I going? Where am I going? Are you listening to me today? Are you listening to me today? Where am I going? Why Why am I harping on that word? Because I find many Adventists going places they ought not go. For reasons that don't make sense. And they try to justify it, but because their hearts are not spiritually fortified, they don't see the danger and they don't know where the storm is coming from. I got friends, I can go through the list that were raised in the church, went to the schools, graduated from from the colleges. And they're all pastoring another church somewhere, and I'm asking, How did you miss the Sabbath? How did you go from Sabbath school teacher and principal to the highest adversary against Sabbath keepers? I talked to one of those guys on the phone, a guy named Dale Ratcliffe. I just go ahead and mention his name. Had a conversation with him on the phone. Raised in the church, raised in our colleges, taught in our academies. Now, he's one of the most ardent haters of Sabbath keepers, and he writes books on trying to convince other Adventists to not keep the Sabbath. When God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And Adventists follow him and say, I'm free now, free and on your way to hell. How can you call freedom, how can you call disobedience freedom? You know why they're there? Because they did not see the direction of the storm. And the most sobering thing of life, the most sobering time of life the time that we should be most sober is after we think that we have gone through our greatest test. Here's how Paul says it. When you think that Mount Carmel is your last test, here's what Paul says. Together, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Can we say it together? Therefore, what? Let him who thinks he stands, what? take heed lest he what fall the time that we should be the most sober and most on watch is when we say i just came out of the worst battle of my life i will never ever ever by my own energy fall to that again let me say something brethren if you don't equip yourself with the power and presence of Christ, you will fall again. Don't ever think that you can face anything that comes your way on your own strength. Can't do it. However, I know in the Bible, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is the time that there, you should be so close to Christ. I'm going to say this not disrespectfully. You should, be able to, you should be able to feel the aroma of his righteousness right next to you. I got just two points in the sermon. The first one is don't attempt to predict where you think the test will come from because it is often the least likely thing that presents the greatest danger. Did you hear what I just said? Don't attempt to predict where you think the test will come from. It is often the least likely thing that presents the greatest danger. I was reading a book called The 48 Laws of Power. And uh, it's a diabolical book, literally. And one of the, one of the, one of the laws say... Play a—behave like—act like like you're dumb to catch the person you're aiming at. In other words, if I come across like foolish, they won't suspect me much. And this book lays out ways whereby you can prevent yourself from being used, but if your mind is not in the right place— You can use those same principles to manipulate people. You've heard the phrase, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer? And so we're going to look at a life of a man who is the best one to teach us the examples of false security. The examples of what? False security. Let's peek in his life. His name is Peter. I've come to appreciate Peter because he's in some ways just like I used to be. Now I'm like he is. Amen, somebody. I learned a lot from him. He was a big mouth. You can wake, up, you can wake him up at 4.30 in the morning. He could still talk his head off. Now, I'm not saying that's who I am. I'm just saying that's who he is. Cut it out. Matthew 26, 31. Let's look at this life. Let's look at what we could learn from this man. Very artistic, but he had to learn some things about himself. Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, speaking to his disciples, all of you, how many of you? All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, this was a prediction. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to where? To Galilee. Well, look at this big mouth, unpredictable man. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, come on, help me out. I will never be made to stumble. You know why he said that, D? Because he didn't see the direction of the storm. And the devil said, "Checkmate." <laughs> Checkmate. That's why I, I, this phrase I, the Lord gave me this phrase: "No one is more fragile than when he is unaware. No one is more fragile." than when he is unaware. Peter had two blind spots. Let's look at the first place he was unaware. He was unaware of himself. Oh, man. Can I I testify real quickly? As I get older, I get to know myself better. Some of you need to get to know yourself because some of the stuff you do, you can't really know yourself. Am I right? Because people say, did they just do that? Did they, just, did they just do that? Yeah, they did. Where did it come from? I don't know. I didn't see that coming either. Some of us don't know ourselves. Let me tell you something. The Lord showed me me. I don't take me for granted. I take me to the foot of the cross. I'm my, I am my own worst enemy. Some of y'all need to admit the same thing about yourself. I ain't worried about you. I'm worried about me. The devil ain't worried about me. He knows I am my own worst enemy. You don't have to say amen, but you better. We are our own worst enemy at times. Some of us are on autopilot in the areas of self destruction. The devil may have gotten us started, but we're messing ourselves up now. And when somebody brings it to our attention, we do everything we can to deny that it was us. But I like what, Paul, what I, I like what David said, Lord, search me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me into the way everlasting. If you don't pray that prayer, you don't know yourself. Peter had two blind spots. The first one, he was unaware of himself. Let's go there. Matthew 26, 34. It's on the screen. He was unaware of himself. Jesus said to him, now directing the comments to Peter, he said, assuredly I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me how many times? Three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. They did not see the what? Direction of the storm. Peter was unaware of himself. Let me make a suggestion to you today. Sit down and have a conversation with yourself. Now, don't do it with people watching because they'll they'll baker act you. They'll call the... My wife is talking to herself. I see her doing it every day. My husband, I think something's wrong. They start videotaping you, talking about you got Alzheimer's, when in fact what they don't really know is you trying to talk to yourself to help yourself get out of the trap you put yourself in. Peter was unaware of himself, but even more diabolical than that, Peter was unaware of his adversary. Luke 22, 31 and 33, Luke 22, verse 31 to 33, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, I could see the Lord talking to Peter, kind of look at him like, you are clueless, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as what? Wheat. When he's done with you, you'll be nothing more than cream of wheat. But I love verse 32, and I praise God for verse 32, because if there were not verse 32, I would not be here. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art, what? Converted. Strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. He was still clueless. Peter was unaware of the direction of the storm. Here's evidence. Here's the evidence. Luke chapter 22, verse 56 and 57. Unaware, unaware. All this, all this testifying Peter did. I'll die with you. I'll go all the way with you. I'll never leave you. Ha! ha! Give me a couple of hours to prove that Jesus knows what he's saying. So here it is. Jesus is now being carted off on his way to Golgotha. All the trials, all the scourging, all the accusations were the disciples. They all forsook him and fled. Peter, the last one. Look what happens. Verse tw- 56 of Luke 22. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. <laughs> But he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. Was Peter telling the truth? Yes. He did not know Jesus. Because if he knew him as he said he did, he would not have denied him. Did you get that? You see, let me make a point. We can know doctrine, but if we don't know Jesus, a book is not going to hold you in the time of a storm but a relationship will. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have eternal life. You can know doctrine, but don't confuse doctrine with eternal life. Because the storm did not come to Peter from being with Jesus. It came from knowing Jesus. Do you know him? You've been with this guy. Do you know him? How long? Let me put this out there. You just think about this in your own life. How long have you been a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? But do you know Jesus? That has revolutionized the way, Karen, that I think about evangelism. I don't want to convince folk of Daniel 2. I want to convince them that they are sinners in need of a Savior that he loves them enough to die to save them. I want to convince them that your life is not the last place that you can find hope because your hope is not in what you do, but your hope is in what Christ has done. And so often, we have these great evangelistic series. Oh, they agree to all the 28 fundamentals they know about, the mark of the beast, the seal of God, and the 2300 days, and we baptize them, not realizing that they have not yet been with Jesus and so when the trials come they say like Peter I don't know him because you can't know Jesus in the way that we should and and walk away from him in the hour of greatest crisis that's why Jesus said in John chapter 17 verse 3 and this is eternal life what is eternal life and this is eternal life that they may what know him that they may what Know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But now I want to show something. Was Peter, was Peter forgiven? Was Peter forgiven? Did the Lord take Peter through the ringer? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter got frustrated. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love Peter got frustrated. But the reason why the Lord did that is Peter denied him three times, and he went to make sure that Peter got all that junk out of his life because he had a sermon for Peter to preach on the day of Pentecost, and he wouldn't put him in that pulpit until he got the junk out of his life. And after Peter's conversion, he revealed the key to spiritual security. My brethren, here is the key to spiritual security. 2 Peter 1 and verse 4. Notice what the Bible says. By which... Have been given us, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That through these, through what, friends? The great and precious promises. You may be what? Partakers of the what? Divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter is saying, until you have been partakers of a nature that doesn't belong to you, you will never successfully escape the lust that is in the world. Until your nature is changed, you can believe all you want. Peter kept the Sabbath because Jesus kept the Sabbath. Peter ate right because Jesus ate right. Peter lived right, walked right alongside of Christ because Jesus did these things that reflected in the life of Peter. But Peter did not know him until after the devil shook his core. And after his conversion and deliverance, Peter unfolds God's blueprint to failure prevention. Let me ask you the question today. Do you want to know what God's blueprint to failure prevention is? I'll be back tomorrow. Do you want to know what it is? Second 2 Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 to 10. Here is the blueprint. What word did I just use? The blueprint for failure prevention. So Peter said, this is what I receive. I partake of a divine nature. But he said, now here is how it works. But also for this very reason, for also for this very reason, notice what he says, giving all what? Diligence. He's going to start doing some math. He's going to start doing some math. Add to your faith, what? Virtue. Virtue, That is love. To virtue, what else? Knowledge. To knowledge, what else? Self-control. To self-control, what else? Perseverance. That's hanging on. To perseverance, what? Godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. Lord, have mercy. Brotherly kindness, love. For if these things, Peter says, are yours and abound, that means they are growing, Notice what he says. You will neither be what? Barren nor what? Unfruitful. Why? Verse 9. For he who lacks these things is what? Short sighted. You know what that means? You can't see the direction of the storm. Your eyesight is messed up. Short sighted. You can't see the direction of the storm. Even to what? Blindness. And has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, I love this part. Therefore, brethren, be even more, together, diligent to make your call and election sure. And here is the key. Can we read this together? Are you ready? For what? If you do these things, what happen? You'll never stumble. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? So this week, if you stumble, what happened? You didn't do these things. If you stumble and stumble and stumble, I talked to somebody this week that said, "You know, you know how it is. We wake up in the morning, we pray, but you we go ahead and we do these things anyway." I said, "No, no, 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 no. That's not true. If you really believe that Jesus Christ can save you from the power of sin, He really can. But you got to have a list." The list of failure prevention has to be activated in your life because Peter said it. He said, after I fell, I know how I don't need to fall anymore. And when you read the life of Peter, he didn't fall anymore. Come out, say amen. He did not live a life of stumbling, 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 stumbling. He was so sold out to Christ that they couldn't do anything to change his direction. That's why I've discovered when people in hurricane and typhoon-prone areas know that the storm is coming, you know what they do? They stock up on supplies for their survival. They stock up on supplies for their survival. How is your supplies? How is your Christian supply? How is your Bible study supply? How is your prayer life supply? How is your dedication to the work of God? How is that supply? Do you want to bail out or do you want to keep going? Where is your supply? Do you have any supply when difficulty comes? Where is it? Paul says, we got to have supply. He says, you know why? When you know the storm is coming, you got to have supply. The Lord has showed us where the storm is coming from. Has he not? That's why he says this to us. Romans 13, verse 11 and 12. He says, here it is. And that knowing the time that now is what, my friends? High time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we, what? When we believe. It's nearer. Do you believe that Jesus is nearer than when we first believed? Yes. So if that's the case, it's time for us to wake up. He said the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Can we get very practical on this area? He is saying, please, gauge the way you live. Gauge what you watch. Gauge how you spend your time on the internet. Gauge how you interact with one another. Gauge how you talk, how you live. These are the practical avenues of the Christian life. If you don't pay attention to these things, you are like Joab setting yourself up for a certain fall and destruction if you are completely unaware of the ambitions of salvation. Because you see, friends, the most valuable commodity during a storm are batteries and generators. You know why? You know why? You know why, Brian? Because the worst thing that could happen during a hurricane is you have no power and you have no light. Hey, Greg, that was deep, wasn't it? Can we be in the storms of life with no power and no light? Don't let it happen. My wife and I, when we went down after Hurricane Maria and Irma, we took down four generators. And many of you helped contribute to that. We took down hundreds of batteries, lights. We lit our family up. And right now, they said, because of you guys, if another hurricane comes, we will not be in the dark and we will not lose power. How's the power supply in your life? Because the Bible told us the storms are coming. Where are your batteries? Let me ask more specifically, where's your Bible? <laughs> that's your batteries. Your prayer life, that's the power. And we know the storm is coming because as I close, John says it clearly in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1 and 3. He talks about the landscape that's before us. He says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, Four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. Brethren, the storm is coming, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Why? Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice, to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And what did he say? Praise God, he said this for us. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God, where? On their foreheads. Can you say amen to that? God is saying, I want to take care of my people. When I have taken care of my people and have storm proof them, then you can let the winds go. And the Lord's servant says in the book Education, page 179, listen to these sobering words. She says, angels are now restraining the winds of strife that they may not blow until the world shall be warned of the coming doom. But a storm is gathering, a storm is gathering, ready to burst upon the earth. And when God shall bid his angels loose the winds, She says, there will be such a scene of strife as no pen can picture. Which brings me to my closing point. Be aware of your strength. Bible characters did not fall at their weak points. We always thought that weak people fall. That's not the case. Bible characters never fell at their point of weakness. You know where they fell? At their point of strength. The devil doesn't come after your weakest point. He comes after your strongest point. Because if he can break that, everything else is not a challenge. My last scripture. Actually, two more. Here it is. Judges 16, verse 5. The example that the devil comes after your strong points. And the Lord of the Philistines came up to her. And said to her, entice him, that is Samson, and find out where his great strength lies. The devil is studying your great strengths. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. That's the devil's plan for your life. Isn't that a sobering text? If you can find out where his strength lies, we'll be able to bind him, overpower him, and afflict him. And that's the devil's plan for our lives. So here's how I close. The three Hebrews remained loyal, even if it meant the furnace of fire. What is the price of your loyalty? What is the price of your loyalty? Daniel kept praying three times a day, even if, even if it meant the lion's den. Are you serving God because he gets you out, or are you serving God even if he doesn't get you out? Joseph refused part of his wife's advances. Even if it meant going to jail. Are you that strong yet? Job refused to deny God, even if it caused conflict with his wife. Peter was thrown in prison, refusing to stop preaching Jesus. And Paul and Silas kept on praying and singing at midnight in jail because they refused to stop serving the Lord. They were unconcerned about the direction of the storm. Because they had their minds fixed in a different direction. And what was that? My last text. And I want us all to read this together. Isaiah 26, verse 3. Are you ready? Here it is. You, come on, let me hear you. You will keep him in what? Perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts In you my brethren my fellow citizens there's a storm coming and it's not up to you to know the direction it's up to you to know the Lord did you hear me it's up to you to have your supplies your batteries your power the power of prayer the batteries of God's Word a power that will never fail you how many of you today want to be ready for the storm now let me get more specific how many of you want to be ready for the direction of the storm if that's your desire today i've already given you the list i've already given you the list the failure prevention list second peter 1 verse 5 to 10 implement that in your life keep your minds focused on christ And as Peter said, if you do these things, you'll never stumble. I've been working hard on my life, praying about myself. Lord Jesus, I don't want to preach sermons and end up in hell. Buy a new suit just to go to hell. Get your hair cut, look good on Sabbath morning, end up in hell. Oh, no, no, no. I want to be in the kingdom. Anybody else? And I'm willing to take myself to task. Why did you do that? What's wrong with you? You know the truth. Live like it. I have conversations with myself. You ought to see me when I argue with myself. That's a sight to behold. But when I'm done, me and God are all right. You ought to have some arguments with yourself. You ought to say to yourself, that was stupid. If you can't do that, you are unaware of yourself, you are unaware of your adversary, and you are going to be taken out because you don't know where the storm is coming from. So would you stand with me this morning? Those of you that are watching, I'm going to pray that you can commit yourself to Christ so that you can be aware, you can put in place the failure prevention measures of God's power of the batteries of God's word, the power of prayer, and begin to assess your life, where you are, the virtue, the perseverance, the self-control, the godliness, the brotherly kindness. And when these things begin to show up in your life, you can walk into any storm because Jesus is walking with you. Father in heaven, the storm is coming, you told us. But in your love and mercy for us, you're holding it back. You have not told the angels to let it go yet because you want us to get our supplies. We need power. We need batteries. And we need to assess our storm preparedness. Are we ready? Where are we focusing? Where are our minds? What is occupying our minds? Why is it that we don't know peace Lord, today, help us to seek that peace by staying our minds on you, holding on to you, embracing you, trusting you, so that before the storm comes and when the storm comes, we can still be in perfect peace. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's people said, amen and amen.